Welcome to the Just Pod, a podcast by the Criminal Justice Section of the ABA, the unified voice of criminal justice. Welcome to this episode of the Just Pod. I'm your host, Emily Johnson, and today we have with us the Honorable Carlos Mendoza, United States District Judge for the Middle District of Florida. And we're here in New Orleans at the National White Collar Crime Institute um, because Judge Mendoza was participating in a panel. So, Judge, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It is a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Uh, This panel today was entitled The Evolving Challenge of Judging. So why don't you begin by telling us about the Middle District of Florida? Well, I am from the Middle District of Florida. I am assigned to the Orlando Division. We have a large geographic district that that, uh, starts in Jacksonville and doesn't end until you get to Fort Myers. It takes approximately six and a half hours to drive from one end to the other. We have five courthouses, Jacksonville, Ocala, Orlando, Tampa, and Fort Myers. And within the Middle District, we have 15 active district court judges. Right now, we're down to 13. We're hopefully waiting for two to be confirmed in the near future future, but that's generally the makeup of the Middle District of Florida. To give you an idea of my caseload, um, it's about 75% civil and 25% criminal, and I carry a total of about 525 to 550 cases at any one time, and it is a heavy trial docket. I did a snapshot for the panel that I was on earlier today. Between September of 2017 and September of 2018, I I had 18 jury trials or 18 trials, 17 were jury, one was a bench trial. The breakdown was 12 criminal, six civil, and the one non-jury trial was a criminal trial. So you get a feel for how busy we are in the middle district. Mm -hmm. And with the middle district of Florida, um, have you noticed a change uh, today in the panel? They referenced the memo by Attorney General Jeff Sessions on May 27th, 2017, uh, where he was charging. Is it the the Department of Justice to pursue the most serious offense? Um, have you noticed a change in your district in charging policy or pleas since this memo or a difference in what cases they're bringing forward? On the panel, there are varying levels of change from pretty drastic change to no change at all. I'd say the Middle District of Florida falls somewhere in the middle. Two changes that I've observed are, are first, uh, there, it's much more centralized now. To get a decision from a prosecutor locally on a case, they oftentimes now have to go all the way to justice in Washington, D.C. to get a decision. And it takes a little bit longer, so there's a little less flexibility in what the prosecutor are doing in Orlando. And secondly, I have noticed that they're charging a little bit different in some cases where you're getting some more mandatory minimums attached to charges. So um, you start with a higher floor in some cases because of the uh, pursuit of some of these mandatory minimums uh, in terms of charging decisions. Mm -hmm. And Correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like I remember the general consensus of the panel speaking to, um, you know, an increase 
in a focus on the opioid crisis or um, immigration cases, and then big pharma. Uh, do you feel like that's reflective of your experience in the Middle District? Well, as far as the immigration cases go, I don't see an, a, a higher number of those cases being prosecuted. They're just being prosecuted a little differently. I've seen recently where a unlawful reentry case is typically going to be prosecuted. And if there's no serious violent criminal history and it's an otherwise pretty innocuous arrest, they're generally going to score between zero and six months. And by the time they make it to the actual sentencing hearing, it's not unusual for them to be sentenced to time served. What I've seen recently is the addition of an aggravated identity theft charge with that illegal reentry, which raises the Florida two-year mandatory minimum plus whatever they're going to be sentenced on with regard to the illegal reentry. So if someone, for example, falsifies their name to try to get a driver's license and they otherwise have no violent criminal history or really limited uh, prior criminal history, they're looking at a two-year floor now. So that's a pretty significant difference. And also, uh, with regard to the opioid crisis, I have noticed that they're going after or prosecuting physicians now who they believe are running what's often referred to as pill mills or that are abusing their privileges in terms of prescribing that type of medication to patients. So I've actually had a jury trial recently on a doctor charged with that sort of crime. Can you elaborate on what that would look like a little bit more? Are is the implication that those doctors that are running pill mills, that they're just trying to profit off of getting people addicted? Is that the implication? Along those lines, the one I had was that the doctor, under the moniker of a, of a medical, medical doctor, was carelessly seeing patients, not reviewing records, and pretty much you came in there, paid cash, and you were prescribed the maximum amount of opioids that he could um, prescribe in that particular meeting. And at sentencing, the government alleged that several young persons are no longer with us because of the misconduct of the physician. So it's along those lines. Yes. And then um, let's talk about sentencing. That was another part of the um, the discussion today, because the, the sentencing guidelines kind of look at that intent, right? And the, the consequences of the action, but trying to measure, you know, how much intent there was on the, the side of the actor, right? Well, when you get to sentencing, then you're beginning to focus on the impact the criminal misconduct has had on victims and the number of victims, victim statements, and sort of uh, all of those variables go into figuring out what the guideline calculation is going to be. And it's not unusual for the government if they want to present victims either by statement or live testimony to give the court more insight into what actually happened. Conversely, it's an opportunity for the defendant and his his or her attorney to give the court a real feel for what this defendant is all about. Because in many cases, you're looking at someone in the worst situation in their life, having committed the worst act of their life, and the defense attorney's there to allow you to see the defendant in a different light so you can understand in many cases that the defendant may be more than this, the worst thing they've ever committed. Mm-hmm. And we, in a recent podcast episode where we were speaking with Jim Fellman, who's also at the National Institute, um, and he's speaking about the sentencing guidelines. What are, what are your views on the U.S. Commission on Sentencing Guidelines? I think they're a great starting point. Um, 
and I think it gives you a range to begin with, and I always will consider them, but then I'll allow the sentencing evidence and the particular circumstances of that case, along with my experiences as a state court judge previously and currently now on the district bench, to guide my sentencing. So I think it's a good it's a good starting point, but it's not the it's not dispositive of the issue before you. Mm-hmm. And how active are you in plea bargaining or what is your philosophy with plea bargaining, specifically with 11 C1Cs? Well, with the plea bargain process, I, I would like to leave those issues in the very capable hands of the attorneys representing their interests. Um, there's nothing better for a judge than watching two capable, accomplished people represent their clients and litigate the matter to closure. With C1C pleas, um, those are conditional pleas and they're not the norm in the Middle District of Florida. I've only taken one and I wouldn't, I don't have a problem taking them, but the general consensus in the Middle District is that we don't do them. And I think there are good reasons why. Um, It's very difficult for me sitting as a sentencing judge to make a decision on what I'm going to do with a case when I know nothing of the defendant. I've never met them before. I don't know anything about them. There's no pre-sentence investigation report yet. So I'm sort of in the dark at that point. And I think it can be problematic if we get to sentencing and once I read the report, I'm uncomfortable with whatever's being agreed upon. Then we have a situation where defendants already waived his right, his or her right to remain silent. They've admitted what they've done. They've had a factual proffer in front of them um, that they've agreed to. And now it's really a difficult situation to ask the defendant to walk that back, withdraw a plea, and now enter a plea of not guilty and go to trial. So I think that can be catastrophic in some ways. So I do think logically for me, because I'm responsible for the sentencing and it's my discretion, I'd prefer to let the evidence take me where I'm going to go and not commit to a sentence before I know enough about the case to make an intelligent decision. Hey, thank you. Um, I, I think... Another thing that stood out to me from the panel that I'd like to ask you about is um, hopefully of value to our listeners and to the people in the room. Uh, The question was posed for defense attorneys um, or to the benefit of defense attorneys. What are you looking for in written and oral arguments from defense attorneys? Well, as I said a moment ago, I don't know these defendants. It's the first time I'm ever reading their name or, or hearing anything about them. So it's important that the defense attorney take time to humanize their client. Tell me about them. Tell me that there's more to them than this horrible thing that's in front of me. Uh, I, I appreciate sentencing memorandums. We talked a little bit about a day in the life video. I think those are valuable. I, I think 10 minutes is about as long as those need to be, but they're valuable. Anything that tells me about your client outside the realm of what they're accused of having committed, I think is valuable. Um, And I also think letting the client, if they choose to do so, make a statement to the court is an important uh, matter for the court to consider. And I always think it's better for those to sort of be genuine. I think it's a bad idea for attorneys to write out statements for their clients and just have them read them into the record. You want a sincere representation from that defendant about how they feel about what's happened. And I think that will assist the court in determining what the appropriate sentence should be. Mm-hmm. So let's go back to specifics uh, around the Middle District of Florida. What do you find to be your greatest challenge as a judge in that area or in that district? 
I think sentencing as a whole is one of the greatest challenges that I have. I lose a lot of sleep. I'm always questioning myself. I always want to be as sure as I can, but I'm not always as sure as I want to be before I'm sentencing someone. It's a very difficult and challenging process. It's stressful. I do lose sleep over it, as I indicated. And if I ever feel differently than that, then I don't want to be sentencing anymore. I think it should be difficult. It should be stressful. And we should not want to send people away on prison sentences unless we're sure and we've thought about it and we're very careful about what we're doing. So I have always found that to be stressful. Um, I think it will always be stressful. And as indicated, if it's not stressful at some point, then I should stop doing it. I I think that's very valid and shows the human element of this process um, because we are seeking for justice. I think all of us and as a general um, populace of, of the United States are seeking for justice, but we want to make sure that we're not losing that human element. Um, what are your thoughts on the First Step Act? I know that came up in the panel, um, and our district judge from the from Massachusetts spoke to the First Step Act. Um, have you gotten to a place where you feel like you have a, an opinion on it, or are you still looking to see what the details of it will be and, and holding out on forming an opinion? I think what's really great about our process is that it's imperfect, but we've never stopped working to try to make it as perfect as possible. Um, I think the goals here are to identify persons who, in our view, were sentenced at a time when maybe the sentences were a bit too severe, and we... And this is not the first time we've taken a look back and tried to correct some of the mistakes we believe we've made in the past, where we find nonviolent uh, persons serving extensive sentences, and we've made a decision that maybe those sentences were too severe, and maybe it's time to move on and give them a chance to become part of regular society again. So I've already resented somebody on the First Step Act, and they spent most of their adult life in prison, and the net result of the resentment sentencing was they got out as soon as I signed the resentencing order. So um, I think it's just another example of us trying to get better and more precise of what we're doing. Um, and I have no problem moving forward with uh, this particular edict. Have you seen any compassionate release cases brought forward? I think that's a that's an interesting concept that um, when I first heard it, I, I wasn't sure what that would mean. But as somebody put it today, someone could end up effectively receiving a life sentence where that was never meant to be the case if they develop a terminal illness or something like that. And that might be grounds for a compassionate release, um, which I think makes sense. There's no reason for someone to not be able to die in peace in their home. But um, or unless I guess what are your thoughts on it? I, I am just processing it. So what are your thoughts on it? You've probably had more exposure to it than I have. Well, I've not seen one in the federal system yet, but I think the reason Judge Saris from Massachusetts was so positive on it was it, be, it because it opens the door and it allows defendants to petition for compassionate release, which is a change because Bureau of Prisons had to be the sort of starting point for that type of a motion and allowing a defendant to uh, begin that process is a step forward. I haven't seen one, um, but I'll be looking for them and I would imagine Imagine now that this particular First Step Act has empowered defendants to take those matters into their own hands, we're going to be seeing more of those. 
Um, I think I've been seeing some discussion about what the second step should be. Are there any thoughts that you have on what should come next? No. That you're comfortable sharing, that is? <laughs> I, I mean, I don't have any thoughts. I mean, I, I think that there are very capable, smart, and accomplished people that are having these debates every day. And these decisions are a result of a lot of collaboration. So I place it in their capable hands, and um, I certainly would participate if asked to. But I, I, whatever is coming our way in terms of trying to make our process a little bit more perfect, I'm all for. And we have very capable people making those decisions. Mm-hmm. So before we wrap up, Judge Mendoza, is there anything else you would like to speak to on the challenges of judging? Well, I an anecdote from a mentor of mine back when I was a state court judge in St. John's County. He passed away before I became a member of the judiciary in St. John's County. But I remember he told me that there are going to be days that you come home exhausted with more work to do than there is time to do in a day. He said, look in the mirror and remember... You asked for this job. It is one of the most difficult jobs I've ever had, one of the most rewarding jobs I've ever had, and I get up every day energized looking forward to what's ahead of me. I never know what's going to come through the door. I never know what I'm going to see, and I've become comfortable with the idea of that I just don't know everything. And it's a learning experience every day. It keeps you alive. It keeps you vibrant. It keeps me coming to work every day looking forward to what's coming. So um, it is challenging. It is difficult. Um, It's all those things, but it's an enjoyable career, and I consider it a privilege to serve in this capacity. Well, that's great. Thank you so much. We really appreciate you taking the time to visit with us at this busy institute. And uh, thank you to our listeners for joining us on this episode of the Jess Pod. Thank you. Thank you.